I want to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. In our remaining time this morning, I want us to look through um, another portion of this chapter. Hebrews chapter 12. As you're turning there, I want to uh, kind of do one announcement. Um, as you know, last week we voted uh, for a new constitution for our church, and uh, it passed, um, and so it went into effect, I guess, Thursday, whenever May 1st was. Uh, so as a part of that is a little bit of a change on how uh, we bring on uh, new staff, and so you're going to uh, kind of see how that works, I think, right away. Um, next week, when you come in, uh, you're going to receive a, um, a description of a position for our church in leading our uh, music, uh, in leading um, all of our musical ministries here at the church. And so uh, you're going to get that and have some time to look over it, and then uh, it'll have when we're going to vote on it and all that on the announcement. So uh, be looking for that to come out. We'd hope to have it this week and just didn't get it all put together uh, because we want it to be very uh, precise. Uh, but some of you came a few Wednesday nights ago and got to meet uh, Aaron. Um, and Aaron is with us again this morning. Uh, Aaron is, um, if you approve the, the job description and everything, I think Aaron is the person that we're going to bring. And normally it would work a little different, but this was already kind of happening when we brought in the new constitution and that sort of thing. But he's going to be coming and spending some time with the choir during their practices, and he'll be available then if you'd like to talk to him or after the service and meet him and that sort of thing. Um, and so, uh, but we'll have all those details for you, but I just wanted to give you a heads up, and I hope you'll take some time to, to meet Aaron, and he and his family have, have been with us a number of weeks in worship and, and kind of seeing how uh, we're doing things here at the church, and like I said, he met with a lot of you who are involved in the music ministry. Uh, so just uh, be in prayer about that. It's exciting. Uh, we've not had uh, a, mu a music minister on staff in um, in about 18 months or more, and I know Susan and Christy are excited to have one on staff, although we're not going to let them go from their work in our music ministry uh, and appreciate everything they've done over the last 18 months or so, uh, but I feel like we're, we're at a good spot to do that. So just be looking out for that, and uh, if you have questions, uh, hopefully a lot of those will be answered in the coming weeks, and uh, and we'll give you a lot more info, but just kind of give you a heads up. If you're in Hebrews chapter 12, I invite you to stand with me uh, this morning as we read God's word, beginning in verse 3. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. The writer of Hebrews says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline may see, for all for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, then he sought it with tears. You may be seated. If you'll think back with me, if you were here last week, and if not, I encourage you to go back and read chapter 11 and the first two verses of chapter 12. God gave us this lengthy list of people who, because of their faith, were blessed by God. And because of their faith, they were accepted by God. And God was able to work through them because they were people of faith. And as we ended the message last week and we looked at the first two verses of chapter 12, we are exhorted by the writer of Hebrews to run the race that is set before us. We are to set aside all those things that hinder us. We are to set aside the sin that weights us down. And we are to run the race that God has for us. And he tells us in verse 2 that we are to run the race looking to Christ, who is the founder or the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, and he despised the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so he kind of leaves us off looking at Jesus, which is a pretty good place to be. But he tells us as we begin in verse 3 that we need to consider Jesus. So we ended with looking at Jesus as kind of our example of faith, the ultimate example of faith. But as we begin to run this race that is set before us, looking at Jesus, then there's something we need to consider. Because... I think it would be easy to see verses 1 and 2 as this great triumph over everything, right? I mean, you get this picture of this person running, and they're putting off everything. They're throwing aside their sin. They're, they're putting off all the weights that hold them down, and they're, they're running toward victory. But he's pretty much a realist. I mean, I would say the book of Hebrews has been pretty real so far. Not a lot of fluffy language, not a lot of, of sugarcoating things. So he, he, he wants to pull us back pretty quickly so that we don't get too far ahead of ourselves. And he wants us to remember that as we look through this whole list of people in chapter uh, 11, not all of them had the greatest of life experiences. As a matter of fact, 
if you still got your Bible open and you look over there, the first person mentioned in chapter 11, you know, by the first by faith is about creation, the second by faith is about Abel, and things don't go well for him. As a matter of fact, his one great moment of faith in the offering that he gives in the book of Genesis that God accepts, his brother gets mad and kills him for it. So he pulls us back a little bit in chapter 12 and wants to remind us that if we begin running this race, which is the one set before us, which is the one where we look for Jesus and look to Jesus, it might not be that easy. As a matter of fact, things might not go well the whole time. And if we're going to run this race that God has for us, if we're going to follow after Him, we need to be prepared for when things don't work out well. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm pretty glad that God is honest with us about that. Because I'm always surprised about the number of people who read through this book and then they stand where I'm standing... Maybe not in this church, but, but in other churches, and say, hey, everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be good all the time. God's always going to bless you tremendously, constantly. And if He doesn't, it's your fault. You need to know that's not the case. The reality is, we need to consider, as verse 3 says, Jesus. Because look what He says at the rest of verse 3 as we consider Jesus. Jesus. He says, Him, consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. He says, First thing, the first thing we need to do is consider when we're facing difficulty what Jesus went through. Jesus endured hostility from sinners on our behalf. And he is speaking here, I think, about Jesus' entire ministry. Now, obviously, he's talking about the end. He's talking about the things went on, especially in the last days of Jesus' life, when he is arrested, when he is beaten, when he is tried and crucified. All of that happens at the hands of sinners. But let's be honest, we're all sinners, right? And everyone that Christ dealt with was sinful. And from the beginning of his ministry, he faced rejection, though he was the God of the universe. He faced rejection from his own people, the Jewish people who had been expecting a Messiah. They rejected him time and time again. He faced rejection and he had to endure hardship from the religious leaders of his day. Because they did not believe in him. They did not believe in what he stood for. They did not believe in what he was saying. They didn't believe he had the authority to do the things he was doing. Jesus would heal somebody, something they could not do, and they would criticize him for it. Well, you did it on Saturday. Now, you don't think anything about that, but that's the Sabbath. You did it on Saturday. It doesn't matter that this guy had a terrible life and you have just made it significantly better. It doesn't matter that we don't know how to do what you're doing and only God can heal people, but you did it on Saturday. Jesus endured hardship at the hands of sinners. And he did so, the end of verse 3 says, 
so that you, meaning us and the people he is writing to, may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus did not come to offer us some type of weak faith. But rather, when we face hardship and we face difficulties and we have to endure hostilities, we are to remember that Jesus has died so that we could face those things. That Jesus, who was perfect, came and endured this hardship and submitted to these people who were not worthy to even untie his shoe. They weren't worthy to even be in his presence. But he endures that for us. So that when you and I face hardship and we face difficulty, we can look back to Christ. As he says, we can consider Christ. So the next time you're going through something and you're facing difficulty, this is what he's saying. The next time you face this hardship, think about what Jesus went through and yours doesn't really look that bad. Because frankly, sometimes we deserve it, right? We deserve what we get. We deserve the stuff that we go through. You know, I went to traffic court or went to talk to the DA or whatever last fall because of a ticket. And I wasn't going as fast as the trooper said, but I was speeding. So, like, I deserved that much of it. My tag wasn't really out, so I don't know where that came from. So I, I didn't get in trouble for that one. But, but, you know, I was speeding, so I deserved it, right? And some of the stuff you've done, you deserved it. I mean, some of us in here, you know, I'm losing for Lottie. Some of you aren't. You can join me. But, you know, when you eat a lot, guess what? This is what happens. I saw a kid run the race yesterday. And he took off running just as fast as he could, and he was out front. And I, the, Jordan Denny was, was with my son on it, so I was talking to the Denny's, and I, I said, that kid's not going to make it. I said, I know, because I was that kid. That kid's chunky. You don't run fast when you're chunky. You've got to pace yourself. You've got to be the tortoise. You're not the hare. Why do you get that way? Because you eat a lot. We deserve it. But sometimes stuff happens, and you don't deserve it. Like some of you are going to find out in life that you've got some terrible disease that's going to take your life. You didn't do anything. You, 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 you get something and you, you never did anything that caused that. It was genetically inherited from your parents. And ultimately, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, which everything does, it's a result of the fact that we live in a sinful world and we're going to die. And whether it's cancer or a car wreck or a heart attack or eating too much or whatever, that's what's going to happen. But even if we don't deserve it, he says here, think about Jesus. He was the perfect son of God. He was the one who has always been with the Father, John 1 says. He's the one who looked down at the darkness and created the light. He certainly didn't deserve it. But he went through it anyway. And in part, he went through it to be your example. So that when you go through those same difficulties, you can say, hey, I don't have it as bad as Jesus. I always think of Job like that, too. I don't know if you've ever read Job in the Old Testament. It's a fascinating story. Job, like, didn't deserve it. This was a good guy. God had blessed him greatly. 
And everything is taken away from him. Everything but his wife, who criticizes him through the whole book. Probably the one person he was really hoping God would take away from him, she's there. And after all this complaining, we get to the end of the book of Job. And Job asks why. That's the whole book. Job loses everything. Job asks why. And his friends all give him this bad advice and they don't know what's going on. And finally God steps in near the end of the book. And does God tell him why? No. God says, um, have you seen the hippopotamus? I made that. And the alligator and all these mountains and stuff. Yeah, I made that. Were you there when that happened? Because I was. And that's the answer to his question. And if you were a type of person that really needs to know the answer, you're going to be disappointed when you get to the end of Job because Job never gets the answer to his question and he's satisfied at the end. God restores him and he's satisfied. Not because God gives him everything back. He's satisfied before that. He's satisfied when God says, I'm God and I'm better than you. And I know what's best for you even if I'm not going to tell you what it is. That's pretty powerful to me. But Jesus was even less deserving of the things that happened to him than Job. And so he says, when you go through difficulty, consider Jesus. Look at him. Look at what he went through. And it's going to make you feel different. But look at the second thing in verse 4. Not only look at Jesus... But this is kind of one of those strange points. And the writer of Hebrews does this, and I, I really think that, that he must have had a pretty interesting sense of humor because he, he says, consider Jesus, and then he comes to verse 4 and he says, and by the way, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He says, you think you got it bad, right? You think you've endured hardships. You think you've went through difficulties. Well, you're not, you're not dead yet. You could be dead. I mean, I guess there's always that. You've, you've not yet, you know, you're, you're fighting against this, this sinful thing. You're, you're standing up for your faith. You're, you're fighting against the ways of this world, but you haven't done enough to die yet. So you could still do that. You know, we, we don't compute that because we, we don't live in a place where people die for their faith. I, I think if... I think if we lived in the type place where I saw this week where they took a Christian out and they killed him and they hung him on a cross out in public, somewhere in the Middle East, I forget where it was, but they probably read this and they understand it maybe a little better than we do. You know, he knew that the people who were reading his book were going to face hardship. He knew that they were going to go through trials. They were going to face difficulties. They were going to be tortured. They were going to be like these people who are listed in verse 11 who face the edge of the sword, who are mocked and flogged and are imprisoned, who are stoned and sewn in two and killed with the sword, who go about in the skins of sheep and goats. He, he was kind of transitioning to them so that they would realize that that was going to be them at some point. And so whenever they're facing difficulties and whenever they're facing hardships and whenever they're facing trials for their faith, they needed to realize that until they were dead, they hadn't paid as big a price as they could. 
until they lost their lives in their fight against sin, they hadn't done all they could. So maybe we remember that the next time we, we get real upset because things aren't going our way. Yeah, I've been there. I mean, I've got the stories just like you've got them. I've got the things that have happened in my family. I've got the tragedies. You know, I mean, I just buried my uncle a couple months ago. He'd been healthy last fall. We went fishing, and all of a sudden, gone. To watch that type of suffering, it's, it's hard. I'm not making it easy. He's not making it easy. He's just telling us that this is what happens because this is life. This is what we're going to go through. But unlike all the people in the world who have to go through this with no hope and in deep suffering, we, as we go through our trials and difficulties, can look toward Christ. And it kind of puts things in perspective. So that's what we can do. And now he, need, he, he wants to tell us why these things happen. Why do we go through hardships? Shouldn't it be all hunky-dory because we've been saved and God is the creator of the universe and shouldn't everything be perfect? He says, verse 5, he asks the question, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? This exhortation here is from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And it points out to us how God shapes and molds his children. And he does so through discipline. Now, I think it's important, as you see that word discipline here, to not understand it solely as punishment. Because there's a difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment, well, I'll look at it from a parent's point of view. Punishment makes me feel better. Discipline makes me feel better and is a good thing for the children. So random punishment, which is what most of our society is based on, ends up in the end not having a lot of good. It doesn't do very much. It's not very productive. Discipline here, he is talking about the molding and shaping of someone. It's like the fact of someone who is an all-star basketball player or is a, an amazing guitarist or pianist or an artist. They have disciplined themselves to their art or their craft and what they are doing. They spend the time that it takes to become what they want to be. So anybody in this room gets up tomorrow and thinks, well, the NBA finals are going to go on, are going on. I'm going to go play on one of the teams. It's going to be really funny for all of us hearing your story of rejection. But you're not playing in the NBA. Matter of fact, you're not playing on a Division I college program. Matter of fact, you're probably not playing very well in most pickup games that are going to happen in New York City or Charlotte or maybe even Hickory going to be bad. Why? Because those people are disciplined. Michael Jordan didn't become one of the greatest basketball players of all time overnight. It took thousands upon tens of thousands of hours of 
practice. When the Christian faith, you and I don't like to practice. Like we don't like to put in the effort. So God steps in and he puts in the effort for us. And he disciplines us to become what he wants us to be. And it's not out of anger, but it's out of love, just like it would be with any of our children. Because the reality is, if you don't discipline your children, you don't love them. I know that's not PC. I know I won't win any popularity contests. But spankings are still good for children. That's what the Bible says, not me. As a matter of fact, the Bible says a rod will not kill them. Just throwing that out there. Don't call social services. I'm just saying the Bible says a rod will not kill them. And sometimes God takes a rod to us. Why does he do it? Well, look at the proverb, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. Do you ever wonder why sometimes when you turn on the television, you see these people that are some of the most wicked people in the world, and they have all of this money, and they get to live it up. They got the biggest house and the fanciest cars, and they get to do anything they want. And it seems like they get out of trouble, and they can have the best lawyers, so they don't go to jail when they do stuff that would send most of us away for life. And you wonder why God doesn't come in and just wipe them out. It's because God's spending his time caring about us. God's spending his time dealing with us. I'm not saying that God doesn't love them. But I'm saying if if God never changes their heart, there will be a day when they stand before him and they give an accounting of that. And they will be punished. And it will be a holy and righteous punishment. And you and I, because we go through discipline, because God chastises us, because God molds and shapes us, we stand before him one day and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah, it looks real good on TV to drive the big car or the fancy car and have the big house. But he's talking about an eternal work that God is doing. And so look what he says about it. He, he defines this more. He says it is for discipline that you have to endure. That's why we keep enduring is because God is disciplining us. He is shaping us. He says God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In the day in which this writer is writing this book for us, it's a, it's a society that is completely based on having a son as an heir. And so the heir would be very well treated. Now remember, he told us before in chapters past that the heir was like a slave until he matured, but he is loved and he is cared for. And so in that day, uh, it was not uncommon at all for fathers to have many illegitimate children, for fathers to have children that just had no chance of ever being an heir. And guess what? They weren't cared for that much. The father wasn't preparing them for the inheritance because they weren't going to get it. It didn't matter. 
It didn't matter what they did. It didn't matter if they became rough around the edges. It didn't matter you know, how they treated the other members of the family. It didn't matter if they knew about the family business and how to handle all of it. It didn't matter because they weren't going to be heirs. And he says, that's not you. He said, if God is not disciplining you, it's because you're not his son. If God is not molding and shaping you, it is because you're not one of his children and you're not going to be heir to anything. So what's it matter? What's it matter if the hearts of those who are wicked are not prepared for heaven? They're not going there. I've always thought it odd the number of people who believe they're going to heaven, but they aren't prepared to be there. It's going to be a culture shock when they arrive. They're not going to know what to do. They're not going to know the songs. They're not going to know what to say. They're not going to know what God looks like. Why? Because they're not prepared. Well, if we are his children, he is preparing us for what is ahead. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes that's difficult. But we go through the things that we do. We go through the trials that we face so that God can mold us and shape us into what he wants us to be. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 9, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. That's what our fathers did. That's what our fathers are supposed to do. That's what we as fathers are supposed to do. He says, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. When you're saved, you don't look a lot like God. As a matter of fact, you, you, you look a lot different than God. You're doing a different thing. You're going a different way. So he saves you and he begins to mold you to look more like him. So you can share in his holiness. So you can be like he is. We're told in the Proverbs that if we train up a child in the way he should go, when he is old, he should not depart from it. It's the same thing with God. As he trains us, he prepares us for heaven and for life here. So when you go through a great hardship, especially, I think, especially when we lose a loved one, someone we're really close to, what God is doing is preparing our heart to be able to work in the lives of other people. I found out, especially as I have experienced more loss over 10 years of ministry, it has made me much more capable of being compassionate on other people. If you've never lost anybody, if you've never been to tragedies, you just don't... It's, it's hard to know what they are. You can, you can know the details and you can know what it's like if somebody dies or you can know what it's like when, when someone is, is, is going through some type of sickness or something. But until you've seen it, you can't really understand. And so that's what God does. Is he puts us through this stuff so we can understand it and see his goodness on the other side. That we can see his compassion when he brings people out of loss and gives them new hope. See, we were once children of darkness. We were the sons of wrath, the Bible describes us. But now he's making us into something different. But he gives us this caveat to remember. Verse 11, he says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
Friends, you in this room don't, you didn't need that verse to tell you that. If you have suffered greatly and God has brought you through it, you have seen the fruits of that. You might be in a storm right now. You might be in a difficult circumstance right now, and you don't see it, but it's ahead of you. And I don't know how far away it is. I can't make you any promises on that, but it's there. It's painful. But as we go through it, he says that on the other side are the fruits of his righteousness. It's the rest of his comfort. I I love that because I think sometimes, especially as preachers, we we try to talk about God, you know, carrying us through these storms and and God being the rock on which you rest. But but sometimes the storms are going to be painful. And you're not even going to realize to the other side that it was God that got you through it. I mean, we see so many instances in the Bible of people who had great faith in God, but going through a storm, they feel like there's nobody there. And yet they get out on the other end and they go, oh, okay, there was God the whole time. I wouldn't even have got through it without him. And on the other end, they can see his goodness and his faithfulness. It's not going to be easy. But everyone who is trained by difficulties and discipline will see the fruits of righteousness. So what do we do? He closes in these last five verses by by telling us what to do. He says, therefore. And he basically goes back to the first part of this chapter, back in verse 1 and verse 2, and he's telling us again to run. Run. He says, you know, we've got a better understanding now of our trials. We've got a better understanding of our difficulties and why they occur. And we are instructed to press on. He says to lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. He uses this idea of the runner again. And when you run... If you're not prepared for the race, you become a lot like that kid from yesterday, again, who was like me. You can take off running full steam, but when he came around that last curve, he was walking. He took off great. He's running hard. But racing might not have been for him. And so by the end, he was well behind. See, if we go into this thing and we think it's a sprint and we think it's easy, it's all downhill, we're not going to make it. I've been in too many church meetings, too many worship services where People got up and they they sugarcoated following God. Listen, following God is not easy, but it's a lot better than the alternative. Following God is not going to make everything great. It's not going to pad your bank account. It's not going to mean that your boss is going to get off your back. Matter of fact, you start doing right, he's going to think there's something wrong with you. It's not going to be the easiest. But... 
He says, get up and run it anyways. Get up and do it anyways. Get up and shrug off all these other things that are holding you back and causing you pain and run this race. He says, because now you know what's going to happen. And you can't run this race. You can't do what God has called you to do with drooping hands and weak knees. It's not going to happen. You just can't do it. But he says, run. And here are the things that he says. He says, as you're running, strive for peace with everyone. Verse 14. You can't run the race and have animosity with people all the time. And some of the people I've met who go to church are some of the most hateful people in the world. And they try to stir up things at every moment and they can't get along with anybody. That's a problem. Because running the race that God set before us is about striving for peace. That's not easy. Some people don't want to make peace with you. Again, we, we know that as a country. There are some people around the world, they just want to start a fight. But as Christians, we strive for peace with everyone. He says, secondly, strive for holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness here, he's, he's talking about sanctification. As we run this race, God is constantly molding us and making us to look more like himself. And to be quite honest, sometimes we take three steps forward and 37 steps backwards. But God is molding us, and we are striving to be more like him. This is not a passive thing where you don't have to participate. You know, if you never pick up your Bible, if you never pray to God, if you never participate in the life of the church, don't be surprised if God is not molding and making your heart to look more like him. Because guess what? God speaks to us through opening our Bibles and praying and in the life of the church. So if you're not doing those three things, God's probably not speaking to you, and he's probably not making you more like himself. Strive for peace. Strive for holiness. Thirdly, he says, let no one fail to obtain the grace of God. Grace starts us on the race. It's God's grace that we have been saved, but it's also his grace that continues us along. If we ever get to the point where we think we can make it without God's grace, we've got a serious problem. Because unfortunately, too many people think, okay, God's grace saved me. Now I'm going to do the running myself. And I'm going to make it myself. And I'm going to get there myself. And I'm going to be the best super-duper Christian I could ever be. And you're going to fail and it's going to look terrible. Don't forget His grace. It holds us up. It does so every hour. He says, destroy the root of bitterness. The roots of bitterness. They need to be destroyed. The roots, think about it, with the tree, they're the thing that are planted deep. In the ground, there are the things that provide nutrients for the tree. Well, if no root of bitterness should be there, it is bitterness that is the core of so many of the problems with sin that we have. And in my experience, in the family of faith, it has been bitterness about stuff that didn't matter that ends up being the core and foundation of problems that happen later. Deep things that seem to be buried underground need to be brought out. Working on my garden this week, apparently y'all had a lot of trees once where I'm trying to plant my garden. That's a problem. Because apparently when you cut the trees down, the roots don't magically disappear. 
If you leave them there, when you try to do something else, you hit them with a the tractor and you pop a wheelie. You do. That's what happens. So he says we got to get rid of those roots. So some of you are bitter about some stuff. Maybe you're bitter with God. Maybe you're bitter with me. If you are, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm sorry if I was wrong. Maybe you're bitter with other people. You need to do away with it. Because God wants you to run a race. He doesn't want you tripping over these roots that you've just left out there because you never cleaned them up. Because in the end, bitterness is your problem. The sin might have been someone else's problem. The bitterness is on you. You can do away with it. You can run the race. He says, get rid of those roots. He says uh, that no one, uh, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. It's not clear here if he's talking about Esau also being sexually immoral. That's pretty hard to understand, but I think that's pretty self-explanatory about what that does when you're trying to run the race. It's going to complicate things quickly. It's going to ruin your testimony. It's going to prevent you from doing what God has set out before you. Now, he also says, don't be unholy like Esau. He sold his birthright for a meal. If you remember this story, again, you go back to the book of Genesis. What happens? He's hungry, and he sells his birthright for some stew, for some soup, for a meal. It's gone. Something that God has as holy, he gets rid of. How many times do we sell out the birthright that God has given us, the inheritance that God has given us, for something that is meaningless? How many times do we sacrifice the goodness of God that that he has blessed us with to gain some money? Or to gain some popularity? Or to gain some position? It's the thing I always worry about when I see people who move from the Christian life and they begin to serve in public life. Because that's the place of great temptation. To sell out your faith for a little bit. And we see it all the time. We saw a politician just last year who ran on Christian family values and he was indicted in the last couple weeks. We've got to guard ourselves. Why would you sell out this great eternal thing that God has given us in heaven for some earthly pleasure? Well, that's exactly what Esau did. He had this great inheritance that was going to be from his family and from God, and he sells it out for a little bit of food. We don't want to do that. We don't want to lose the blessing of our Father for something cheap. We're warned to avoid losing this blessing. Because that food that he ate, guess what, probably five hours later, maybe six, he's hungry again. And it was gone. We do not trade in the things of God for temporary pleasure. He warns us against that. It will prevent us quickly from running our race. Matter of fact, he says at the end, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, it's the second thing that happens. He, he wants his father's blessing. He was rejected because he no longer had his birthright. 
he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He had traded, he had traded this thing from his father for some food. And so the Bible says at the end, when he wanted to be blessed by his father, it wasn't available. And friends, that happens to people in the church all the time. We can't trade the things of the world for the things of God and expect that God is going to bless us when we come to him, even if we're crying about it. So I want to leave you with this. This race that God has us running is not easy. It's a race that has twists and turns. It's a race that is uphill. It is a race that is difficult. But this is a race that God uses to teach us. He disciplines us to look like Him. He does so in love so that we'll run with endurance. He gives us Christ as our example. He says, consider Jesus. Consider Him. Him who dealt with these sinners for you. And he tells us that our trials are preparation. You know, I don't think that you and I see that very well. I know I don't. I don't think we realize a lot of times, especially when we're going through them, that these things that are happening to, happening to us. Listen, I've been here for over a year now, and some of you have went through some great hardships. And I wouldn't dare sit with you. And be like, hey, this is just preparation for what's next. Because that would be cold and you would justifiably be angry. But let me ask you that if you've been through them and you're sitting here now, as hard as they are, have you begun to be able to see where God was using it to prepare you for his grace? Maybe you're not there yet. It's not like there's a time date that it, in a year God does this. But, but begin to look for that. Look for how God is preparing your heart by the trials that you've been through. This life is not easy, but friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know him, it's the only life. Every other road, every other existence leads to death and separation from God, but his way leads to life. And it's a narrow road. It's a hard road. But it's the only road that we have where there's hope. If you don't know him this morning, I want to invite you to come to follow him and to run that race. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, God, we are grateful that today we have we have your life, we have your hope. God, I, I don't like the trials. I, I don't like difficulties. I don't think we're supposed to. But God, I'm thankful that we can find great comfort, that your trials lead to the fruit of your righteousness, that the discipline that you put us through, as you mold us and shape us, God, it leads to life. 
And God, I know there are people here this morning who don't know you. They've, they've never trusted in you, God. They, they're just wandering. And God, I just pray that you speak to them, that you would show them your love and mercy even this morning. God, that you would show them the hope that they can have in you. If they'll abandon the road they're on and run the race that you have set before them. God, I pray for each one here as they go through trials and they go through difficulties. And God, as you discipline them, I would just ask that they would find your grace and mercy to be enough. God, your faith to be, God, abundant in them. God, I thank you for your word and its power for us. And God, I pray these things this morning in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Uh, we're going to sing. And whether you do so down front or where you are or wherever, I, I would just ask that whatever trials you're going through, that you would just ask God to clearly show you where he's working where he's maybe fixing some things in your life. Even though it seems like things are being broken, God may be fixing them even when you don't realize it. Whatever it is that God's doing, that you would just cry out, that he would lead you, and that his grace would be sufficient in whatever trial it is. Would you just respond to his word as we sing?